0: The dark days are done, and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere, sunny one so true, I love next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on The New Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is John Barber, live from Las Vegas, where every hotel is full of craps. That was Sarita singing Sonny on her birthday and Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny, the night he hosted The Tonight Show. Last night was the Oscars, a little watched awards show celebrating some little watched movies with one or two exceptions. As you know, there is much to talk and joke and comment about, but I'm going to leave that up to Joe Satilli, who'll be joining us later. But instead, right now, we're going to talk about something that America does not want to talk about. Palestine. After the 1972 Munich Olympics, when I saw Johnny Carson say absolutely nothing following the murder of the Israeli athletes, I did a commentary on Channel 11 in Los Angeles locally about what it must be like to be a Jew in the world today. For two years, it became the official fundraising film for the United Jewish Appeal, raising $35 million, and I was made an honorary guardian. That can be seen on my site, YouTube forward slash JohnBarbara'sWorld.com, the Munich Massacre. In light, though, of what Israel has been doing to Palestine and its children, would I do the same today? I am not certain. As you all know, with our film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy... A runaway hit now on Amazon, thanks to you, and word of mouth and also on Vimeo. I and thousands of others can point out every day the proof that Jim Garrison was right when he said elements of our CIA killed our president. That subject is not forbidden. But pointing out the proof of Israel's genocide in Palestine and their influence over our foreign policy is. When our Congress people are sworn into office, they do not sign a pledge to support the Constitution. It's a pledge to support Israel. And those who do not sign it, like one of our country's most courageous Congress people, Cynthia McKinney, are vilified and gerrymandered out of office. When President Kennedy was alive, he was trying to get into court to get AIPAC, the American Israeli Political Action Committee, registered as a foreign lobby. No president or politician has since taken that position for fear of ending up like Cynthia McKinney or President Kennedy. Mark Twain said, quote, strange that physical courage should be so common, yet moral courage so rare, unquote. My guest tonight has a monumental abundance of both. Inherited from half his family, destroyed in Auschwitz. He is recognized as the world's clearest voice of conscience about Gaza, as documented in his recent book called Gaza. No words could better introduce him than those of Alice Walker, Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Color Purple. In his book, she says, quote, When I want to learn about the deepest reality of Jews, Zionists, Israelis, and Palestinians, this is the voice I listen for. Helping save the earth, pointing out again and again the soul-shriveling, unavoidable truths. There is no one like Norman Finkelstein. Norman, thank you so much for being here, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Where are you? Where are you speaking right now, Norman?
1: Uh, I live in uh, New York City in the borough of Brooklyn, which is near Coney Island.
0: Are you? I hate to ask you this, but are you out on bail?
1: Yeah, I'm currently on bail. I think it's, uh, it's seven thousand five hundred or ten thousand dollars. I'm not sure.
0: Um, could you tell us the reason why you were arrested and why you're out on bail? And didn't this happen back in November? And why is it taking so long?
1: Um, It's a complicated story, hard to simplify. I'll try to put it in just a couple of sentences. A former student and subsequently a close friend of mine uh, went through a ugly divorce and he fell prey to a couple of uh, vulture matrimonial lawyers Uh, By the end of the uh, process, uh, the vultures had um, left only the carcass of his being. Uh, He lost everything. He was a medical doctor. He ended up in his parents' attic, and he was left homeless and near penniless. Uh, as a result of a uh, a really um, criminal process, and I intervened on his behalf. And then these vulture matrimonial lawyers went after me, and the proceedings unfolded in this tiny little place called Nassau County, which is kind of like a pre-civil rights era backwater in the American South, uh, where everybody knows everybody, and they all belong uh, to the same um, cavern of ghouls, so uh, they went after me, and are now trying to put me away.
0: Oh my goodness! How is it possible? that anybody could lose more than half of what they own in a divorce proceeding.
1: Oh, that's not unusual. You're obviously not familiar with divorce law in the United States. It's very possible to lose everything except your drawers.
0: Norman, uh, your book, Gaza, is heartbreakingly beautiful. I hate to say that, but It is. Could you please explain to me how you, as I would guess you'd call it as a survivor of parents or half of your parents on your father's side. How you came as a Jew to grow up knowing what happened to your parents under the hands of the Germans. And then in 1960, published this unbelievable book called The Holocaust Industry that Wait, set the Jewish year world did
1: you say? aflame. I, I published it in 2000.
0: Yes. And how how did you come to do that? I mean, what was the process that you went through when you were growing up? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you have grown up just hating Germans?
1: Well, to say that my parents say it Germans, but uh, I can't say that was true of either myself or my two siblings. Uh, we tried to be fair in judging people and try not to prejudge people. and there was no reason to prejudge anyone until there was grounds. Uh, to um, to hate or to look with suspicion or skepticism before making any judgments. Really, evidence has to be shown. Otherwise, you act on the good faith principle that your interlocutor is as decent as human being as you are.
0: Well, you say that evidence had to be shown. So somewhere along the line, then, you must have been reading and digesting evidence that led you to the conclusions that you outlined in the Holocaust industry that you published in the year 2000. Could you take us through those steps? I mean, it must be very difficult or it must have been very difficult for you to think, You know, Jews are taking advantage of other Jews.
1: Um, No, it wasn't difficult for me at all because I judge individuals not by their ethnic or national identity, but as people. And in any ethnic group or any national group, You're going to find crooks, thieves, and scoundrels. That's just the nature of the game. you also find very decent people, and then you'll find people who are a little bit of both. And uh, so when it became clear that there was a gang of Holocaust hucksters uh, who used the suffering and martyrdom that the Jews endured during World War II Make a buck, and in this case, it was on the order of a billion or more bucks.
0: When you talk um, about these hucksters, are you are, are you saying that these hucksters are Zionists? Are they Jews? No, they're They're they they about
1: Zionism. They just wanted to make a buck. They're crooks, and so they uh, went around Europe claiming that they were collecting money in the name of needy Holocaust victims.
0: goodness. This brings me to you talk about uh, hawksters. This is again a a quote from Mark Twain. He says it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. Do you think Jews, prominent Jews have been fooling less prominent Jews? I I go back to two things. One of them is uh, supposedly the founder of Zionism, Theodore And I read some of his speeches when he was wandering around Europe in the early 1900s trying to talk prominent Jews into settling in Palestine. And, And correct me if I'm wrong. Did he not say they did not want poor Jews? They did not want uneducated Jews. They wanted a Palestinian Jewry of elite Jews. Am I quoting him correctly?
1: that quote, and I've read most of Hertz's
0: works. Then then let me get to a, a, a book that you have read, and that's Perfidy by Ben Het, the <laughs> trial of a doctor named Rudolf Kastner in Hungary. And evidently, this trial in 1954 and 1955 in Israel, it was like the movie, The Boys in Brazil, when this lady recognized uh, Lawrence Olivier as Mengele or something living in in Brazil. But in any event, they had this trial, and it was covered by Ben Heck. And evidently, this very prominent doctor was found guilty because he allowed thousands of Jews to be transported from Hungary to Auschwitz and other death death camps. Is that story true?
1: Um, There is all sorts of um, controversy about what happened with the Hungarian Jews and the leadership and whether the leadership of the Hungarian Jews made a deal with the devil. I um, There's so much literature written on it and I've not kept up with it. As a general rule, you can say that at the beginning of the Nazi Holocaust, say in 1940-41, Uh, the Jewish councils, the Judenrats, as they were called, uh, the Jewish councils, which the uh, Germans uh, created to act as interlocutors between themselves and the uh, ordinary Jews. Uh, At the beginning, they were a mixed bag. Some probably genuinely wanted to... um, genuinely wanted to do the most they could as leaders to save the lives of Jews. But by the midway, when it was clear that they were just part of the, they were the uh, cogs in the machine of death, and they just were out to save themselves, so they sent the other Jews to their death, hoping they would save themselves in the process, and they were just the scum of the earth. Which is why, among Jews, the term Judenrat is a term of loathing, hatred, and contempt. If you say to a Jewish leader, "You're the Judenrat," it's meant, and he take he or she takes it as a insult, uh, and it it's a, it goes back to the experience of the Jewish councils during World War II.
0: Right now. Is there, you know, because you're the most prominent voice in this country speaking on behalf of Gaza. But right now, is there not in Israel a very large movement of people who feel exactly like yourself and exactly about how their government is treating the Palestinians and the children of Gaza?
1: In Israel?
0: Yes handful of people who
1: are opposed, a handful, you can count them the fingers of your uh, two hands, of people who oppose Israeli policy in uh, Gaza. Um, otherwise, then, uh, otherwise, uh, why? Okay. Israeli society is fully aligned with Israeli policies.
2: Wow
0: that 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 is startling. Is Israel the only country in the world that has not got clearly defined borders?
1: Uh, I'm told that's the case, but I've never investigated it closely.
0: How is it that I mean there's there many times they've been introduced into the United Nations these these voices that say that they, we must have a peacekeeping force in Israel, we must we must uh, protect uh, the, the lands in Gaza. Why is it that one vote, that of the Israeli government, stops that?
1: Well, it's not the Israeli government; it's the vote of the United States government, which uh, prevents any action. Uh, on uh, Israeli crimes against humanity and war crimes uh, vis-a-vis Gaza, the West Bank, and Lebanon. It's not the Israeli vote, it's the U.S. vote.
0: How then could the American vote be changed in order to stop what is obviously a genocide, as you point out in your book?
1: Well, I never call it a genocide. I would say that it's a crime against humanity. Uh, in order to demonstrate a genocide, you'd have to demonstrate that there is an intention by the Israeli government to wipe out, to exterminate uh, the Palestinian population. I don't think that's their goal. Their goal is to terrorize the population into submission by carrying out uh, crimes, systematic, methodical uh, crimes against humanity.
0: Well, you know, often these things, these stories, uh, Schindler's List, I had a very difficult time getting emotionally wrapped up in Schindler's List because it is very difficult really, to imagine six million people being incinerated. It's just impossible. It's beyond comprehension. But it's easy to identify when it happens to one or two solitary individuals. Did you ever see a movie called The, the Little Shop in Main Street, a Czechoslovakian film? Yes, I did
1: see it. with, with, with I, Ida Kamina, I, Kaminska, I, Ida Kaminska. I,
0: I must tell you, I could not leave the theater for 20 minutes after I saw that film because basically, and I'll tell the audience, it's a, a, a shop that's owned by a Jewish woman and she has sort of a, a I would say, somebody who is intellectually or mentally challenged, who's the house, who's, who's the, the caretaker. And when the Germans take over, the caretaker is given the shop. And she has to run the runs shop. And it's the most devastating, emotionally moving movie about this subject that I have I have ever seen. And I saw a story a few years ago, Norman, about a 23-year-old girl. I can't remember her name. I think she was from Georgia. And she went to Gaza. And she stood in front of a doctor's house. She befriended the doctor and the family. And the Israeli bulldozer moved in. And they picked this doctor's house because it was prominent to bulldoze. And she stood in front of the bulldozer. And the bulldozer killed her. And I did yes, not see so that.
1: I know their family. It's the Corries, and the girl's name was Rachel Cory.
0: Could you please tell us that story, why she oh. went there?
1: She was one of the, what was called at the time, international solidarity movement activists who were putting their lives in the line in order to protect... Uh, Palestinian homes, which were being bulldozed, Palestinian crops, which were being bulldozed, um, Palestinian goods, uh, which were being uh, confiscated. They were interceding between the Israeli uh, marauders and the Palestinian population. And when it was clear that this doctor's home was going to be bulldozed, she stood in front of it. Proceed to murder
0: her. Was was any legal action brought by any organization, the United Nations? Yeah, there was or? a lot
1: of legal action, and of course the Israelis did nothing.
0: Oh my goodness gracious. Well, what would you... I, 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 let me backtrack a minute. I mentioned Ben Hecht, his book per- Perfidy. In his autobiography, A Child of the Century, the last chapter... Norman is called the committee, and he's approached by uh, Israeli, they call him freedom fighters, but Americans and the British call them terrorists, and he became the first propagandist for the state of Israel, and almost seemingly little handedly became the most important fundraiser in America. They raised enough money to buy a ship, they called the Ben Heck, they put 1,000 freedom fighters on it, they armed it, and they went to Tel Aviv. That boat was sunk by Ben-Gurion, who became the first uh, prime minister of Israel. Ben-Het then turned his back on the state that he ha- happened to cre- help create because the Jews, meaning Ben-Gurion, had turned in the worst kind of human being, and that is a politician. Why would Ben-Gurion have murdered, if that story is indeed true, 1,000 of his fellow freedom-fighting Jews and then bless the guns that killed them.
1: No, that's not accurate. Uh, There weren't 1,000 people killed. No, I I think you have the story confused.
0: Well, uh, you're you're familiar with the incident in Tel Aviv with the boat that Ben had?
1: Yes, the boat. I don't remember the details now, but the boat was sabotaged. Uh, yes. I don't think anyone was killed.
0: Well, then, then, ben either wrote it wrong, or I read it wrong. So we come down to the the bottom line. You have all these facts and these truths, as Alice Walker says. What would if you had the power to do it? What would you do to solve this? Because there has been nothing but disaster. In the Middle sure. East. I'm
1: going, I'm going to end this because I thought it was an interview about my book, and you're just oh, bringing oh. in all sorts of stuff that has nothing to do with the book. It was nice okay, and with then you Norm, let's.
0: Interview. Norman, let's. Oh, my goodness. Well, that is kind of surprising. I am um, sorry that we lost Norman. I wanted to get to the book, but in order to get to the book, I had to get into the background of his life and the evolution of the state of Israel. The book is called Gaza. And it is truly an interesting, interesting book. But it is heartbreaking, as you can see, I'm trying to talk to somebody who's articulate and knowledgeable about this, as Norman is. I mean, he wrote that groundbreaking book that upset entire, entire Entire world of Jewry and non-Jewry called the Holocaust Interestry. Um, really sorry that we lost Mr. Finkelstein because there is no more important subject than America's foreign policy and as he points out the control of our foreign policy by AIPAC and that the trouble lies here in the United States the trouble lies in the United States because of the control of AIPAC over our foreign policy, and the fact that we have over twenty-two dual citizens of Israel in America, who are making foreign policy and domestic decisions, domestic policy decisions about our country, and about our. Country. And would that be allowed if they were Russian Americans? Would it be allowed if they were Italian-Americans or Afghani-Americans or Italian-Americans? I don't know. And these are questions that we should have pursued.
2: Joe, uh, were you listening to
0: uh, Norman?
2: Yes, I was.
0: Were you surprised when he hung up?
2: Um, actually, not that surprised. Why? Uh, well, Norman is, uh, I've seen him and heard him over the course of many years He's a bit uh, of a curmudgeon, you know. (laughs) Uh, aren't we all? No, I mean, this is, it's, I think it's, it's, um, it's part of his personality. And it's actually part of what makes him a critical thinker is that he is a committed academic. And I think that that's one of the, one of the reasons why Dershowitz went after him to make sure that he could never hold an academic post again. Because a guy like Norman Finkelstein is a guy who prospers when he achieves tenure, and once you achieve tenure, then you have the freedom to—you have the scholarly freedom to explore whatever you want to explore without fear of re- repercussion.
0: I and see. There but he—he few- he lost his—he uh, lost his tenureship at DePaul because of Dershowitz.
2: That's what I'm saying. That's why I think Dershowitz went after it because Dershowitz knew that that was the one thing that could hurt Norman Finkelstein the most is the denial of access to that kind of academic freedom for the kind of thinker that he is who uh, needs that kind of academic freedom to protect him to allow him to do what he do what he does best which is ask it,
0: a it, in or, in order for me to get to the essence of the book was I on the wrong track when I was trying to outline what I've what I've read about the development of the state of Israel and the persecution of Jews, not only by Nazis, but aided by other Jews?
2: Well, I mean, I, here's the thing. And I, I mean, I'm not going to get to intention or anything, but this is just a, sort of a, a dime store analysis is that I'm going to assume that over the years, there have been a lot of people who have tried to weaponize Norman Finkelstein because he is somebody who is critical, as you pointed out, With uh, obviously we all know about the Holocaust industry, but he's also been wildly critical and uh, I think appropriately critical of the occupation in the uh, West Bank and Gaza. And there are people who are not just not friends of Israel, but probably not friends of Jewish people who would love to weaponize Norman Finkelstein.
0: So oh, I, th- I see what you're saying. So I,
2: I think he's probably saying. understandably at this stage of his career testy. I think it also doesn't help that he just got out on bail, um, you know, he, uh, but it would not surprise me if um, because he wanted to talk about his book. That the, the route that you were taking to him was not didn't make sense to him. Because he's probably had people who uh, were, did not have the same sympathies for his position and for the plight of the Jews in the Holocaust, as you pointed out, who tried to use his scholarly work for their own ends. And he probably, when the line of questioning doesn't go the way he wants to, thinks it should go, he probably bails on a lot of people, I would assume.
0: Well, I, I told him, you know, that it, it was his show and his interview. And if I was going somewhere that he did not wish to go, he could lead it and he could have gotten into the, the book and I would have been happy to explore the book. But I wanted to lay a lot of that foundation because yeah. I must t- tell you that, uh. Ben Hecht was not lying when he said that 1,000 were murdered by Ben-Gurion and he blessed the guns which are in a museum in Tel Aviv. It wouldn't be like Ben Hecht to do that. And Ben Hecht was also the one that wrote Perfidy, one that Norman Finkelstein had read. And it is true that Herzl used to go around Europe in the uh, in the 20s saying that they wanted wealthy and educated Jews in Palestine and not the uneducated so evidently there are Jews and the, there are the Jews who are the chosen Jews and they choose themselves but they do not choose other Jews but in any event regardless well, I
2: mean that, I guess that would make uh, Jews like just about every other group on the planet.
0: That's exactly right. <laughs> right?
2: Because, I mean, the, the desire to exclude those who you don't who think are not um, not in the same uh, economic, socioeconomic class as you is, seems to be a, a universalism in, a, in human experience.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the sad thing for me is that I'm a huge fan of his, I'm a large supporter of his. And I wanted to get to the to the book and for some reason or other he got very uncomfortable talking about the things that are uncomfortable. I mean, these are uncomfortable truths for crying out loud. Well and it, it, it and, and it's difficult to me for me to imagine that anyone just wants to sell a book.
2: No, I I, d- I doubt that. I mean, I don't think Norman Finkelstein is getting rich off of what he's writing. I that's no. darn sure.
0: No, I th- that 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 isn't that is indeed true. Anyway, that is sort of that is sort of uh, sad for me.
2: Well, let's but in- let's, keep, let's keep it going and going in a, a slightly different direction because I come at this. You know, you made the you know APAC is, I would say, in town. I say that I always say that reflexively because of the time I spent in Washington D.C. But APAC is in town. They're in. They're having their annual conference, and Mike Pence is uh, speaking and. Trump is going to speak, I believe, maybe tomorrow, the next day. And Bibi Netanyahu's in town and had a photo op with Trump. And, of course, one of his close aides turned uh, state's witness. Um, And that broke just as he came into Washington, D.C. I put that story from Haaretz on the rundown today. There's this wonderful symmetry between Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu because they're both facing um, tightening investigations in their countries. Um, I think Donald Trump is using a trade war, a potential trade war to distract. And I think that Netanyahu would be more than willing to use uh, a, a hot war, um, a proxy war in Syria to distract from his domestic troubles. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating about the AIPAC discussion, because, I, you know, ever since particularly there are two things. There's a Pat Buchanan declared Capitol Hill um, Israeli-occupied territory. I want to say that was 1999. Um, and uh, Stephen Merchimer, I think it's Mershimer and Walt. Stephen Walt and, and another guy named Merchimer wrote a book on the Israeli lobby. This was around 2006 or so. And it's really an amazing piece of scholarship. I mean, it's, it's really uh, comprehensive. And Walt still is a columnist, I believe, for foreign policy. And uh, you know, Buchanan uh, more rhetorically, but uh, Mershimer and Walt more scho- in a scholarly sense, really unpacked the extent to which uh, Israeli uh, money and influence through AIPAC has applies pressure on foreign policy decision making inside the United States, and that's that's there. Uh, there's a large segment of the united states that you know of, of the american people I don't, I don't know how large but let's just there's a there's a a group of people who who say that this is kind of a truism that um, israel gets a free pass on foreign policy and more than a free pass they're actually some people believe making foreign policy but actually come at it from a slightly different direction and in trying to understand why it is that israel has seems to have so much influence in the united states i think that there's actually another layer of this. And, you know, one of the people who, who played a role in contemporary times in merging the evangelical Christian movement with with Israeli aims was the recently passed Billy Graham. And the evangelical movement has been instrumental, instrumental in um, in shaping U.S. foreign policy towards Israel because you have to we forget that after um, uh, right around the time of the Gulf War, you know, uh, the first Gulf War under George Herbert Walker Bush and James Baker, they decided that because of what they had they had neutered at the time Saddam Hussein, who was considered a threat by the uh, Israeli mili- the Israeli military planners, the IDF and um, and the Mossad, they and Shinbet they felt now is our time to go for broke and you ha- and you know when i think about herbert walker bush and baker these are oil men so where is really where was their i don't want to say loyalty but where was their primary interest it was in kuwait and saudi arabia <laughs> the cutter the gulf states and at that time those arabs were not aligned with israel quite to the contrary and they actually forced israel to the table with the oslo peace accords and there was an actual opportunity or a chance at that time for the United States to pressure Israel to do something to resolve the occupied territories. And that was at, right in the time of the first intifada when Hanana Ashrawi was the leading spokesperson. She is very educated. She's a Palestinian. She's a Christian Palestinian who was the, the face of, um, of the Palestinian cause on American television uh, at that time. And all of those gains ended up getting reversed. A lot of those were lost, right? The death of Yitzhak Rabin, a lot of those, which was at the hands of a right-wing Israeli, a lot of those were squandered by Bill Clinton, and a lot of those were lost to the um, backlash inside the Republican Party by the Christian Zionist movement, which we know of as American evangelicals. And Christian Zionists support Israel not so much because they really, really like Israel, but because they think that the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the where the temple on the, the temple on the Mount used to be, um, that which is right above the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. If that once that mosque is destroyed, and if Israel can do that destruction, it'd be great. That is the signal for Jesus to come back and take all of the Christians back to heaven before the end destruction of the planet. <laughs> That's I'm not kidding here. I, mean, I, know, I know this is actually part of the motivation, and then they think about 144,000 Jews will be converted, and the rest of them will actually be be consumed in the conflagration when when the planet is left behind because it's actually just a way station on the way to you know the heavenly Lord. So it's a the reason I bring that up is because I think that there's something much a deep seated. Affinity in the American psyche to Israel, because America was actually founded in much the same way Israel was founded. These supposed, in the case of the the pilgrims, they were not quite the same religious refugees that the uh, Israelis were. I mean, at least the Israelis are right? They were flying... But
0: and it it looks the truth is, it looks like the Palestinians are going to end up like the Iroquois.
2: That's it. Well, not the Iroquois. I think more like the Sioux. I because I think what's going to happen is, is they're going to be forced into a um, a reservation system.
0: uh, You know what? I don't think the Palestinians, I don't think the Israelis will uh, allow one of them to survive.
2: No, I think they will. They will because you want to know what they are. They, they actually are the workforce. They are a oh. cheap workforce that has built many of the homes inside Israel proper. And this yes, is, but
0: what about what about the homes that they're bull, bulldozing?
2: Well, the land that that's, they're stealing. That's, that's basically. I you see. I think the the term that's more uh, accurate is ethnic cleansing. It's about actually cleaning them off of. Places, particularly in the West Bank, where the water table is the highest. If you look at pictures of the water table, you can Mm -hmm. see where the Israeli settlements are occupying, literally the places where the aquifers are the deepest, and they're basically pushing. They're basically pushing the um, Palestinians into um, kind of a patchwork quilt of de facto. Um, sort of reservations all around the West Bank. Gaza is kind of an open-air prison. And- well,
0: I, you know, you were, ta- you were talking about uh, how 144,000 are going to be taken up to heaven. You know, if you look at the world, actually, somehow or another, it seems that every religion in the world is somehow become more, is becoming more and more fundamentalist, and the reason may be that these believers, whoever they're Christians or Jews or Muslims or whoever they are, are looking around at a world that is totally out of control.
2: Well, John, right it, it, now, right now, the the greatest crime against humanity right now on the planet. There are two of them. There's 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 uh, Yemen, right. And I, 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 the reason I don't say Syria is quite there is because there are armed people fighting with all, it's a giant proxy war. It's a mess. Ghouta right now, what's happening there is probably a crime against humanity. It is, but Yemen, that's a crime against humanity. And what is happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar and what is going, you know, I, this is, you know, people's eyes glaze over mostly because our, 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 News media only likes to look at uh, America's n- uh, own naval. We're a bunch of naval gazers. We don't look at the world. But what's happening with the Rohingya is they are being systematically purged from Rakhine State by Buddhist fundamentalists. <laughs> oh, Buddhist geez. fundamentalists, John. I mean, when the Buddhists <laughs> get fundamentalists and they start purging an entire people, and and, and, and we're talking about mass graves and villages being burned. Talking hundreds of thousands of people being pushed into Bangladesh and off of their homes.
0: It's like Monty Python has reinvented every religion.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I I will give you a. <laughs> I actually have a theory about this. And I'm, you know, me, I'm like to I like to report on things and you know analyze the news a little bit. But I have a theory, and I think that I think we all kind of know that um, that we have despoiled the planet to the point at which it is starting to fight back, and we are entering what I think is going to be an age of massive climate migrations. I I think there is already a case to be made that some of these migrations are uh, already uh, part of the impact of climate, particularly you have massive migrations out of sub-Saharan Africa. And this is one of the things that's destabilized Europe and destabilized Italy to the point at which Italy has seen 20 percent increases in some of these proto-fascist or neo-fascist parties in the election that just happened yesterday. And that's because you have migrations now that are coming out of places where there is huge impact on crop production, on water supply. And I could tell you as sea level rise, which is which is actually happening right now, sea level rise is happening, when Bangladesh gets, gets flooded to the point at which it is kind of an alluvial plain, it is a giant, right. right? when that ocean water starts going back up the delta and you start having lands that are that are crucial to provide rice subsistent living living uh agriculture for 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 tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of people and that starts to get not only just flooded but flooded with salt water
0: well with joe a, i don't think that's necessarily a theory you're talking about i think that's an absolute fact i mean these well, no but the, these, these migrations these yeah. migrations probably have been going on since the beginning of time i, I mean if you look at the Inca civilization just disappeared because because of crops. They couldn't grow food anymore.
2: Yeah. So here we are. I my theory side of it is that I think we as human beings subconsciously know, and particularly in our sort of tribal affiliations, know that we are entering into a period of great turmoil and it's not just political turmoil it is ecological environmental and structural turmoil in which the our ability to survive is going to be is going to come into question and you know we are spending a lot of time talking about we you know weather is always a fun thing for the news to cover but do you know that we had a period just this last week where it was over 40 degrees in the arctic and it was under uh, it was um, well below freezing and headed towards zero in Europe.
0: Wow, forty degrees in the Arctic means a 40 lot. Degrees
2: of... in the Arctic, over forty degrees in the Arctic. So we are yeah, actually—that
0: that are... means that—that that means that they're eighteen degrees above freezing, uh, or thir- yeah. eight eight degrees above freezing, which means stuff is going to melt.
2: Stuff did melt, and we are actually seeing. You know this is why you know people say, oh, why are environmentalists who cares about the polar bears and the polar bears and the polar bears? The reason why the polar bears are starving is because they hunt by um, sitting on on ice, and they and when the you know when a seal comes by, they dive in and get them. Well, the ice is disappearing, and here's an one of my favorite you know sort of ironies. I mean, if you were looking, and I'm not saying that I be- believe this is a conspiracy theory, but if you wanted to make a fun conspiracy theory, isn't it funny? how the oil companies have always wanted to get to the Arctic to ex- to exploit the vast oil reserves that they know were under the ice, but they couldn't get there. The ice was too thick. Well, what now that we've had global climate change warming to the extent at which
0: oh my goodness. That,
2: all of a sudden the Arctic is open, and guess what? They are all heading up there looking for ways to, to finally exploit that. And guess what? They, the reason they're able to do it is because they heated up the planet, with all of the hydrocarbons that they sold us, that we burned, so oh, it's
0: my, really oh kind of a wonderful—it's a wonderful system oh for them.
2: Look, well, I, the, on,
0: the only salvation then is to wean ourselves away from coal and oil.
2: Well, oil and coal is dying, and um, and, and you know, you can. There's a little bit of a, a little bit of a salvation because of because Trump is, has had some policies that make it more. Uh, more um, amenable for people to use coal. But the people who are using the coal or people who are benefiting from the coal are you know not very many. One of the main reasons why coal workers have gone out of work uh, initially was because of automation, not because of lack of coal use. But we're at a point at which solar and wind is beating hydrocarbons, which would be oil and gas, on price per megawatt hour. It's actually more cost-effective to use solar and you know china just opened up the world's largest solar plant and uh offshore wind turbines in uh in britain for example have britain i mean they're moving towards like 50 percent renewable sourcing so if let's put it here's a kind of a funny thing about it john is you know that the fifth fleet is in bahrain yes The fifth fleet so just Why? think about this for a second The United States has its fifth fleet of the Navy, permanently based in Bahrain. Is it because, you know, like we love the the state of Israel, we support the Israeli people and everything. They're this great bastion. Is that why we're in Bahrain? (laughs) Oh, you know, John, everywhere I go, the Americans are saying, we love those Bahrainis. We need to protect them with the fifth fleet. It's not because we're protecting the Bahrainis. It's because of oil. And if you think about it, most of our military spending is for what? To protect oil. Why are we increasing our naval presence in the South China Sea? To check China's ambitions. Yeah, their ambitions to get oil, because there's a lot of oil in the South China Sea.
0: Joe, you're talking about things that are absolutely and totally important, and yet these are none of the things that we ever hear about discussed in Washington or discussed in New York or discussed in the mainstream media. I mean, if you don't find something on YouTube or some uh, obscure professor somewhere, you never get to the subjects that really matter. And speaking of a subject, again, it doesn't matter. Did you happen to see the Academy Awards last
2: night? I I watched uh, most of it. You know, I I mean, I actually went ahead uh, ahead and recorded it and then. Did some fast-forwarding. I saw the opening. I thought, I don't know what you thought. I, I,
0: I, I, did, I, I didn't watch it, so go ahead and tell me.
2: Well, I would say that the one thing they were trying to do, they softened the tone. Um, there were almost no Trump-related jokes. There were uh, – Jimmy Kimmel did a good job of hitting on Harvey Weinstein and casting <laughs> couches and all that, which is – I mean, talk about a giant target of opportunity. I mean, you yeah. can't mess that up. Um, I think – uh, they were trying, it was the 90th anniversary. So they were trying to, um, re- do a throwback to sort of the, the golden era of Hollywood a little bit. Um, but I thought it was actually kind of mundane. And I, you know, I do wonder, John, if we're getting to a point at which, and I wonder this about, you know, you're talking about th- things that matter. We have a new generation coming. Baby boomers are almost done. Uh, my generation is totally in debt, and we're screwed. <laughs> that, yeah, we,
0: that we are.
2: We are, yeah. You know, anyway, and to, uh, with these you young, know,
0: I have a I lip- wonder
2: if they're even going to care about things like no. word shows in twenty no. years. It seems to no. me something that's an anachronism.
0: No, you and I lived through, I think, the best of times, actually. But anyway, I have a little anecdote that I'd like to tell you. It's a in, in, in my autobiography, I have a whole section about where I was a critic and there were some little critical tidbits. I was called one time. I reviewed uh, uh, Deep Throat and uh, so <laughs> I, was recall- I was called because a the theater owner in Orange County had been uh, arrested for showing the movie and the lawyer who was defending him heard my review and called me down to be an expert witness. And after I... Commented on the on the film, the judge dismissed the case. But the, I have another little tidbit here. You mind if I read it to you?
2: No, please. I love I love these. Uh, anecdotes. Okay, and,
0: and it, it, it revolves around a fellow named Hal Cantor. Hal Cantor wrote the Academy Awards for about 25 years, and he used to do. And he uh, did the George Global Show. He, done, he It was one of. The, he was Hollywood's greatest gag writer, and everybody is well aware of that. And his uh, father had invented those classic comics, and so he, very very bright guy. Anyway, he was a, he was an early supporter of mine. Anyway, this, this this is this this is a brief little anecdote. Uh, John, I need you to do me a favor. It was Hal Cantor. Sure, Hal, whatever. I can't do the Oscars warm up tonight. I'd like you to fill in for me. Hal, no one can fill in for you, but you've been doing it for years. They'll kill me, a critic. Are you kidding? He laughed. You might be surprised. You're the only one, the only one I think can handle it. Jesus, what did the producers say? John, it's only the warm-up, not the show. It's my call. I think you'll do great. Hal, against my better judgment, I'll do it for you, no fee. He said, thank you. During the mid-'70s, Americans were frequently frequently amused or irritated by a wacky stunt that popped up periodically. It was called streaking. A young man or woman would disrobe and run naked through some popular gathering, mostly onto the field during baseball or football games, cheered on by the fans and chased by the athletes. The most notorious of these was during the previous years, Oscars. At the height of the show, a naked young man streaked across the stage only to be chased and tackled by British actor David Niven. David got an ovation for what many called his greatest performance. I wanted to somehow reference streaking during my monologue. At the time, the most powerful and caustic Hollywood columnist was Joyce Saber. She'd been anointed the heir to Hedda Hopper by the L.A. Times, but unlike Hedda, Joyce could write, as her best-selling novel, The User, shows. She once described Julie Andrews as having, quote, a blossoming dullness, unquote. She was made more influential by being the wife of one of TV's most successful producers, Douglas Kramer. Walking onto the stage, I was greeted with a mixture of boos and polite applause, as was most of my material. The theater, overflowing with stars, was not hostile and at times a little receptive. I was very comfortable delivering my last line, which got a roar. I said... During the rehearsals this morning, there was an unconfirmed rumor that we were streaked by Joyce Haber. The audience giggled, and I continued. It's an unconfirmed rumor, though, because nobody wanted to look. I walked off to an ovation. When the phone rang in my office the next day, I thought it'd be hell, but it wasn't. It was Joyce Haber. Well, Mr. Critic at Small, my friends called me last night to tell me how badly you bombed. And I said, Miss Haber, you do not have any friends. This stopped her cold for a moment. She said, I have tons of friends. I said, readers aren't friends. You have tons of readers. A real friend, Miss Haber, would not be calling you to repeat my joke to you. Only people who do not like you would take delight in that. She paused, stuff for something to say, and so I continued. Miss Haber, I do not know you. I read you sometimes, and you're a better writer than most, but in general... I'm no fan of any gossip columnists, folks making a living off of celebrities. She said, Jesus Christ, John, that's what you do. Well, I howled. You're so right. And that is really funny. And so was my joke. She chuckled. It was. So you don't think I have any friends? I'm sure you do. They're the ones who did not call you. How would you like to have dinner together? Doug and I only have a few, live a few blocks from you. I'd love you to come by and meet him. I think. You and I will get along well. Over the next few months, Serena and I spent three early evenings visiting Joyce. Her husband was never home. She said he was off again with one of the boys, and Joyce was never sober. She was smart and funny, a great storyteller, one of the sweetest, saddest women I ever met. I did like talking to her and listening to her, but that joy was diminished by being around a woman who drank. Shortly after we stopped visiting her, she divorced Doug. She died at 60 of kidney failure. And that's my little anecdote.
2: I was waiting for the happy ending. <laughs>
0: well, there is no, she died of kidney. She died of kidney failure. There was no, there well, was no. On, happy that up,
2: on that up note.
0: Okay. So, and oh, and by the way, the line, the line that got the guy uh, from deep throat, that got the case thrown out of Orange County is the judge asked me to, what was the last line of my review? And I, I told the judge, I hate to say this in an open court, I said, but my wife and I walked out after the first 15 inches. Well, (laughs) the the place went berserk and he hammered down the uh, (laughs) case to Smith. And that's the funniest thing I've ever heard in court. Anyway, Joe, thank you so much. I apologize to Norman that I didn't quite get to his book. And I'd like to close by saying, folks, you cannot put makeup on your soul. Its beauty and ugliness can only be seen by your actions. So good night, as Ed Murray used to say, and good luck. Oh, you my spark of nature's fire. you my sweet, complete desire. A sunny,
1: sunny, 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 sunny. I love you